All right, we are back, and a part of me hates to do this, but a part of me really wants to do this. This being making mention of a statement uh, Donald Trump made last week about the Japanese people dropping bowling balls on their cars. Yeah, last week in a private fundraising meeting, (laughs) President Trump said the following, according to the Washington Post, which obtained an audio of the speech. This section of the article drew a lot of attention. Quoting from the president, it's called the bowling ball test. You know what that is? That's they take a bowling ball from 20 feet up in the air and they drop it on the hood of the car. And if the hood dents, then the car doesn't qualify. Well, guess what? The roof dented a little bit. And they said, nope, this car doesn't qualify. It's horrible the way we're treated. It's horrible, noted the Post. It was unclear what he was talking about. Last Thursday, the White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said Trump was joking, saying, quote, obviously he's joking about this particular test, but it illustrates the creative ways some countries are able to keep American goods out of their market. Another guess about what Trump was thinking is that he was perhaps getting confused with advertising stunts or maybe an old David Letterman gag. So was he joking? Was he trying to make a real point? Neither explanation really makes sense because his fundamental argument is unsound. So unfortunately, the question again arises, is the president mentally unsound? And you know, we do appreciate the fact that here in the United States of America, we still have the right to question the sanity of our chief executive and see that right protected under our Constitution. The Chinese, unfortunately, don't enjoy that same right, and China has evidently gone into censorship overdrive recently after a wave of online criticism greeted the Communist Party's decision to abolish presidential term limits, which will let President Xi Jinping stay in office indefinitely. Chinese authorities have scrubbed Weibo, Chinese, China's most popular social media platform, out of words and phrases such as incompetent ruler, shameless, and emperor. We do want to thank the president for making it less necessary on a weekly basis for this program to try and come up with a joke of the week. But let us otherwise revert to some of the things we used to traditionally start the show with, quote, quip, etc. And on today's program, offer up our quote of the day as one from Marshall McLuhan. Said Mr. McLuhan, many a good argument is ruined by some fool who knows what he's talking about. And our quip of the day from former Radio Parallax guest Neil deGrasse Tyson, who once said, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. We do have a barn burner of a stat for today's program. According to the USA Today's Suffolk University poll, in the aftermath of the Parkland, Florida school shooting, 76% of Americans think that people treated for mental illness should be banned from owning a firearm. But the poll also noted that 12% disagree. Yes, apparently 12% of Americans, if this poll is correct, thinks that people treated for mental illness should not be banned from owning a firearm. We do not know whether this 12% itself represents the mentally ill, although on some level we think it sort of does. You know, here's a stat from the archives, September 19th, 2003. It amazed me then, I'm digging it up and using it again today, At that time, according to the Washington Post, 69% of Americans believed Saddam Hussein had a role in the September 11th attacks, even though the U.S. government said it had no evidence of any such connection. And speaking of stats, we have one here from the U.K. 
According to the Daily Mail, a recent poll by a military charity found that nearly half of British millennials thought Winston Churchill was prime minister during the First World War, not the second. Another 10% believed Margaret Thatcher, who occupied number 10 Downing Street from 1979 to 1990, was in fact running the nation from 1914 to 1918. And perhaps most horrifyingly, 5% of British millennials said that the bloodiest battle of World War I was the Battle of Helm's Deep, which in fact took place in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In defense of British millennials, Mr. Merlin points out it, it, it was a bloody battle. They weren't wrong about that. Here's a final stat from CNET.com. Apparently more than 70% of videos viewed on YouTube come from recommendations driven by artificial intelligence. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Norway, which topped the leaderboard at the Winter Olympics in South Korea, winning a total of 39 medals. The Scandinavian country tied with second-place Germany in terms of gold medals with 14 each. Team USA, projected to win 37 medals, came in fourth with 23. You know, I thought the whole idea of the Olympics was to kind of put aside this idea of national teams and chauvinism and all that but uh if it was the original tent it certainly has been lost along the way the communist bloc used to secretly turn so-called amateurs into professional athletes for the sake of winning medals and as the olympics turned to commercial interest back in the 80s to self-fund uh, it all became a matter of winning medals so that you could promote the advertisers behind the programming but that all said Congratulations to the Norwegians. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for impersonations with the news that a Georgia woman was arrested for allegedly impersonating a federal agent in an ultimately futile attempt to get a discount at Chick-fil-A. Police said Tara Marie Solom first tried to convince a drive through worker that she was a federal agent and so deserved a cut-price lunch. When that didn't work, she went inside the chicken joint and flashed a silver badge at two managers. Told she needed to be in uniform to get the savings, Solemn said that would blow her cover and possibly get her killed. When Solemn refused to back down, the workers called police, who took her away in cuffs. And it was surely an ugly week for pest control a week or so ago. In the wake of a man in Michigan setting off a smoke bomb in the crawl space of his home in order to evict a gang of skunks. He did succeed in his plan, but in the process burned his house down. According to firefighters, the smoke bomb sparked a blaze that rippled through the property within minutes, destroying nearly all the man's possessions. Fire Chief Kevin Sullivan advised people with skunk problems to hire pest control professionals, but added, and, and we just have to like this, 
But if someone is an absolute die-hard do-it-yourselfer, he or she should at least read the smoke bomb's instructions. <laughs> it should be noted that Radio Parallax fully endorses this position. But at least no one was seriously hurt in the fire and no skunk carcasses were found at the scene. And although I probably shouldn't tell this story, I think I will note that a friend of mine who was, shall we say, a little too fond of hitting the sauce, somehow obtained through her near-do-well son a military-grade smoke bomb. She was nursing a grudge against her former place of employment and sort of leaked to me the information that she planned to go there and set off the smoke bomb as an act of retribution. Somewhat alarmed, I, I traveled to the imminent scene of the crime to see if I might prevent it to discover that the management had somehow already been alerted of this possibility and, or at least something bad happening had called the police and, and well, to make a long story short, nothing bad happened. After which, however, I was accused of being the person to have alerted the management over the possibility of something bad happening. I, in turn, advised her that had I gotten there in time, I might well have done that, but in fact I did not and was innocent as charged. I, I don't think she ever believed me. I didn't really care. I looked up on the internet what it is a military-grade smoke bomb might accomplish, and I realized th this isn't the kind of thing you buy in a novelty store. Anyway, no harm, no foul, and no skunk carcasses were found at the scene. Anyway, speaking of crazy technology, and I guess we are, how about this one? Amazon has <laughs> now received a patent for a drone delivery system which would drop packages from the sky via drone. Writing for the East Bay News Group, Ethan Barron posed the question, imagine a future in which an Amazon drone hovering 25 feet above you drops a package onto your patio or your high-rise building's balcony. No need to cover your head or shield your children and pets. Amazon's got plans to protect you and your package. The Seattle e-commerce giant, which intensely focused on drone deliveries as it seeks to speed packages to consumers more quickly and cheaply, underline that one, cheaply than its competitors, received a patent Tuesday for dropping a package from the sky. To cushion the landing and protect the goods inside, drone-delivered packages would be wrapped in an airbag that could be inflated with a gas or even the downdraft from the aircraft's propellers. Drop locations would include backyards and patios, according to the patent for an airlift package protection airbag system. Anyway, some people have expressed some skepticism over the idea of, of drones weighing, I don't know, perhaps dozens of pounds flying above you several hundred feet. And of course, then there's the noise factor. May I remind you, dear listener, of the fact that when we made our trip up to Oregon to watch the eclipse, one person in the campsite elected shortly before totality to put a drone up into the air. The jeering uproar from the crowd appeared to discourage him immediately, and he brought it back to ground and did not try to lift it up again. And frankly, this was a good move. The noise of a hovering drone would not have enhanced the experience of the eclipse totality. Note of the article, even packages falling from the sky in a controlled fashion do raise safety issues. Amazon apparently addresses those in the patent. 
Say you're barbecuing on your patio and a delivery drone appears. There's no reason to worry. But if you want to keep your package, you'll need to get out of the way and take your dog's bottle of beer, kids, with you. Reportedly, these drones could use cameras and other sensors to make sure the drop zone is empty of people, animals, and fragile objects. Again, I can think of nothing more pleasing to be in my backyard barbecuing than to have a drone appear overhead, ready to drop a package from 25 feet up. Well, frankly, Mr. Millen, I would decline that method of delivery. But you, of course, being an American, would be free to do as you like. And on phase two of this discussion, we would note that while flying cars have never taken off, Flying humans around in drones is another idea that seems to be gathering some steam. Reportedly, prototypes are already flying, and they're due to go on sale next year. Now, as a licensed pilot and a licensed driver, I fear the idea of taking drivers and giving them a third dimension to work with. But doggone it, let's, let's talk about something else. Have you ever wondered why the Bible is written so badly? And how's that for a segue? Well, we were amused with an alternate piece with that exact title. And uh, therefore, I think we will take a few excerpts from it. Piece by Valerie Tirico opens as follows. Millions of evangelicals and other Christian fundamentalists believe that the Bible was dictated by God to men who acted essentially as human transcriptionalists. If that were the case, one would have to conclude that God is a terrible writer. Noted Ms. Tirico, many passages in the Bible would get kicked back by any competent editor or writing professor. Kicked back with a lot of red ink, often more red than black. She goes on, mixed messages, repetition, bad fact-checking, awkward constructions, inconsistent voice, weak character development, boring tangents, contradictions, passages where, where nobody can tell what the heck the writer meant to convey. This doesn't sound like a book dictated by a deity. She goes on to say that a well-written book should be clear and concise, with all factual statements accurate, and characters neither two-dimensional nor plagued with multiple personality disorder. Unless, of course, they actually do have multiple personality disorder. A book written by a god should be some of the best writing ever produced. It should beat Shakespeare on enduring relevance. Should beat Stephen Hawking on scientific accuracy. Should beat Pablo Neruda on poetry. Should beat Alexander Solzhenitsyn on ethical coherence should beat Maya Angelou on sheer lucid beauty, just to name a few. Why, she asked, does the Bible fail to meet this mark? One obvious answer, of course, is that neither the Bible, nor any derivative work like the Koran or Book of Mormon, was actually dictated by God or another celestial messenger. I have to pause at this point to note that I'm, I'm not very familiar with the Koran. My understanding is that the Arabic in it is, is quite beautiful. I do, however, have some familiarity with the Book of Mormon and frankly cannot resist quoting Mark Twain and frankly cannot resist quoting Mark Twain about that book. Twain labeled it a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament, adding that if the book was translated by Joseph Smith, 
it truly was a miracle, or at least how he stayed awake while doing it was. But back to the Bible. This alternate piece asks, why is the Bible so badly written? Falling short of perfection is one thing, but the Bible has been the subject of literally thousands of follow-up books by people who are genuinely trying to figure out what it means. Despite their best efforts, conclusions don't converge, which is one reason Christianity is fragmented into over 40,000 denominations and non-denominations. Anyway, the piece goes on to quote Bible scholar Bart Ehrman, who I'm proud to say was on Radio Parallax, I believe, twice, and can be found in our archives at radioparallax.com. He was a most interesting person to speak with about things biblical. Ms. Tirico does go on to note that while Christians may treat the Bible as a unified book of divine guidance, in reality, it is a mix of several different genres, ancient myths, songs of worship, rule books, poetry, propaganda, gospels, coded political commentary, and mysticism, just to name a few. She notes that translators and church leaders down through the centuries haven't always known which of these they were reading. She adds that modern comedians sometimes make a living by deliberately garbling genres, for example, by taking statements literally when they're meant figuratively or distorting things someone else has written or said. Whether they realize it or not, Bible literalists in the pulpit sometimes make a living doing the same thing. You know, if this sort of thing interests you, and I, and I, hope, uh, I hope this is interesting to you, you do want to check out the article. You might want to also consider... Uh, getting a hold of a copy of Isaac Asimov's Guide to the Bible. I found it to be a fascinating read when I uh, stumbled upon it a couple decades back. Asimov made a point to go through every book in the Bible and explain when it was written, probably who wrote it, and who the target audience was. This alternate piece does note that the Gospel according to Matthew, which was evidently not actually authored by Matthew, was written for an audience of Jews. The author was a recruiter for the ancient equivalent of Jews for Jesus, which is why in the Matthew account, the Last Supper is timed as a Passover meal. By contrast, the Gospel according to John was written to persuade pagan Roman prospects. So the author timed the events differently. This is just one of the many explicit contradictions between the four Gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. Anyway, the Bible is without a doubt the most influential book in the history of Western civilization. So, dear listener, if you've never thumbed through it, you should do so. But as you do so, keep in mind that the Bible does contain two different creation myths, three sets of the Ten Commandments, and four contradictory versions of the Easter story. And, Mr. McBrillan points out, in this case quoting George Bernard Shaw, Zero jokes. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't give you the quote from George Bernard Shaw, which was, in his opinion, the lack of humor in the Bible was, was the most singular fact in the history of world literature, or words to that effect. And, speaking as someone with a great many Jewish friends, and who has spent a great deal of time swapping jokes with them, and I would quote my good friend Stephen Block, as saying, Doug, I've heard you tell jokes. You're a Jew.
By the way, this contention apparently has been somewhat borne out by my amateur genealogist cousin. Whatever the case, I have to agree that an Old and New Testament together, in combination, clearly, books written about Jews, for Jews, by Jews, or in the case of the New Testament, Jews slash Christians, the absence of jokes means somebody took them out. Although Mr. McMillan at this point suggests that I produce a joke we've used before on several occasions about a joke that might have been removed from the Bible, I'm going to leave it for next week's show. By the way, I do expect that this previous discussion will induce among at least a small percentage of our listenership the following reaction. Wait, he's not Jewish? Such a reaction I find highly complimentary. Since we're talking about uh, ethnicities and Christianity, I think I'll end the program with an article I've been hanging on to since 1999 about Dom Enrique, better known to you as Prince Henry the Navigator. Now, it's a matter of historical record that the Iberian Peninsula, both Spain and Portugal, were at one point almost completely occupied by the invading Muslim armies. For hundreds of years, one of the great centers of Islamic civilization was Cordoba in Spain. But in the wake of the Christian Reconquista of the peninsula, the Muslim civilization was driven back to Africa. And Portugal, owing bowing to Spanish pressure, forced its Jewish population to convert to Christianity or leave. This hothouse of religious intolerance did set the stage for the actions of Prince Henry the Navigator, which did substantially alter the course of European and world history. Now, we should remind you that one of the great fiascos of world history was the Crusades. Possibly the most celebrated was the Third Crusade. It was maybe in some ways one of the least nutty. In the year 1118, they did manage to establish a Frankish kingdom in Palestine. They took the name the Knights Templar because they were quartered near the temple. This was the first military order in Christian history. Owing no allegiance to any secular ruler, the Knights Templar expanded rapidly and steadily and soon became the most powerful organization in Europe behind the Catholic Church. The Templars went on to join Spain and Portugal in a campaign against the Muslims to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula. But they ran into trouble with both the king of various countries like France and the Pope. In the 1300s, the Pope tried to suppress the order. King Denise in Portugal, who remembered the order's help in expelling the Muslims from his country, ignored the Pope's order to detain members, and he allowed them to escape. He seized and occupied their property and established his own national military order, the Order of Christ, which wound up adopting most of the Templar rules, including that of secrecy and religious military ethos, and in essence were the Templars reborn. In 1385, it provided Portugal with its second ruling dynasty, when John of Avis, the order's master, became John I. John's third son was Prince Henry. Henry's the one that got the idea of finding another way to get to the east and all of its riches that would bypass the Muslim overland-dominated routes, which eventually Portugal succeeded in doing. He was partly motivated by commercial interests and partly motivated by religious zeal. It was under Henry's direction that the Madeira Islands were discovered by Portugal and later colonized, from which I get my mother's family. This time they also officially, in essence, rediscovered the Azores Islands and colonized those too, from which I get my dad's family. You've got to see him reading this article. I knew about the commerce part. That's obvious to anyone. But I didn't realize 
how much Henry was really motivated by a desire to spread Christianity around the world. But I do know he was followed by some people with religious glint in their eyes that you know, did, did some bad things to the Muslims. And for more about that, we recommend you go to our archives for our wonderful interview with author Nigel Cliff about his book, The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama. Hell of a sailor, but not necessarily a real nice guy, that Vasco. Reportedly, again, per the amateur genealogist cousin of mine, Michael, uh, we're descended from him. I am happy to report in closing that although he did do some nasty things to the population in India which he encountered, Mr. McMillan, who does trace part of his family tree back to that part of the world, does not hold it against me. Wait a minute. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. I am Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. I think we need to go out with some bouncy music. Hmm, something with a maritime theme. I know. Let's go out the way we came in. The Beach Boys and the Fat Boys. Wipe out. Oh,